This is Car Expert. For Volkswagen to do a special version of the Combi shows that it really cares about building a new reputation for its electric cars and tapping into its history, and I think that can only be a good thing. Japanese brands to really be quite slow off the mark with EVs. Is that starting to bite them? Well, the sales data would suggest yes. Oh, no, nobody's going to be drag racing big four-wheel drive SUVs. Yeah, but we did, and it was a lot of fun. You're welcome. <laughs> Welcoming to this week's Car Expert podcast, Scott Colley. Hello, Mandy. And hello, William Stopford. Hey, Mandy. Scott, you've just been mentioning you've been driving a uh, Mazda 6 20th anniversary. It feels like that thing's been around for quite some time now. So we thought we actually might talk about cars that have aged gracefully, and no doubt that's one of them. It sure is, yeah. I haven't driven a Mazda 6 for a little while, uh, and the the model that we've got now has been updated a couple of times, but never fully overhauled. And it feels old in a couple of places, but it's aged really nicely. The interior has been updated with really beautiful new materials. I think it looks fantastic, especially the wagon. And the way it drives still holds up as well. It's still comfy and quiet, and with the 2.5-litre turbocharged engine, has plenty of performance as well. It sort of dovetails really nicely because last week I was driving an Audi SQ7 and that car is also about eight years old now underneath but has also held up really beautifully. It's still massive inside. Audi's updates to the interior make it feel really modern and the big update is ditching the turbo diesel engine for a petrol V8, which they did last year, and it means that every time you turn it on, you just get this lovely crackle of V8 noise and you put your foot down, it sort of sounds like rolling thunder. The fact it's old doesn't really matter. It's still got a whole heap of charm. And I kind of think that there's something to that as as the GLE goes to big screens and the BMW X7 essentially turns its interior into a, a gin palace. It's got so many lights and screens and flashing things now. The SQ7's aged really gracefully. Wait, Mr. Diesel here is happy about the change to a petrol in the in the SQ7? Yeah, I am, actually. Um, I prefer a diesel engine in, in a lot of cars, but this V8 just sounds so good. Uh, and it's so unique now as well. But beyond a few sort of high-end performance versions of big four-wheel drives, it's a really rare thing to get a petrol V8. I also, I love diesel engines because they're effortless in really big cars. A nice, talky Turbo 6 really just feels comfortable and relaxed and kind of in keeping with the luxurious character. This Audi V8 doesn't feel like a highly strung petrol engine that needs to be worked really hard. It kind of feels a bit like a diesel. It makes lots of torque down low. It just sounds better. Mm. Do you have any cars that you think have aged gracefully, Will? Oh, geez. Well, if you look at some of the oldest cars that are on sale in Australia today, you've got stuff like the Mazda 6, you've got the Fiat 500, MG3, Mitsubishi ASX, Nissan Patrol. I'm not reading from a list. I'm not planning an article to this effect. <laughs> Um, but of of those um, that have been on sale for you know a decade now, I, I, I agree with you, Scott. The, the Mazda Six has aged really well because it got a pretty substantial interior overhaul um, several years ago, and it just helped that it always looked really nice. And you know how a lot of the time, you know, a facelift uh, does it kind of robs some of the design purity and, and makes things look a little bit fussier because the design's like, oh, we need to change something. I'll oh, pick that. Um, I think in the case of the Mazda 6, it actually looked better after its facelift. And I haven't actually sat in the 20th anniversary edition yet, but Jade was showing me on um, on video the other day. And I'm like, wow, this is actually a really nice interior. Obviously, the infotainment is out of date. But the thing is, yes, the, the midsize segment is disappearing. Um, you know, you've got the Camry and, and virtually nothing else really sells all that well. But the Mazda 6 has been a consistent number two and number three finisher overall in sales. So for the few people that are buying midsizes, they are still attracted to the Mazda 6. And I think that's in large part because it still looks good after all these years. Well, I think the Patrol is maybe a study in not aging gracefully. Uh, we, we had one of those through recently for the mega test that we'll, we'll talk about later in this podcast. And Yes, it still has a V8, but so much about that car feels ancient now um, from the the way it looks inside to the tech to even the way it drives, which although it's still fine, it's very capable off-road, it feels lumbering and heavy and chunky in a way that a new Land Cruiser just doesn't. Yeah, and there's you can tell how old the interior is um, because there's, there's nowhere to put your phone 
Um, they haven't bothered to upgrade it to um, offer Android Auto and Apple CarPlay. Considering the price point that that sits at, is that's absolutely ridiculous. Considering the fact as well that left-hand drive market is going to completely overhaul the interior that looks so much better. But I will say this in, in defense of one aspect of the Patrol's retroness, the gathered leather trim in the doors, I know it's a 90s throwback, but I, I kind of like it. <laughs> yep, I dig it too. If we've missed any cars off this list, uh, shoot us an email, podcast at carexpert.com.au. To welcome to this week's Car Expert podcast for car news, Jade Credentino. Hello, Jade. Hello, Mandy. Now, it looks like the Volkswagen ID buzz is going to get longer. Yes, that's correct. So Volkswagen had the world premiere of the long wheelbase ID Buds at Huntington Beach near Los Angeles. The stretched ID Buds adds 250 millimeters to the wheelbase and is now 4,962 millimeters long. Uh, it adds seven seats across three rows. Um, it is going to be available with a remounted electric motor, which produces 210 kilowatts and does zero to 100 kilometers per hour in just 7.9 seconds. The longer wheelbase also allows for a larger 85 kilowatt hour battery. Um, and the GTX version uh, will also feature on the long wheelbase and has power outputs of 250 kilowatts. And Volkswagen says it has a 0 to 100 kilometer sprint in just 6.4 seconds. Now, the shorter ID Buzz has a range of 402 kilometers on a WLTP cycle. So we're just waiting for Volkswagen to confirm the longer wheelbase option. Now, new features on the long wheelbase include a heads-up display, the next-generation infotainment system, remote parking via a smartphone, a new designed panoramic sunroof, uh, which gives a 50s somber bus vibes, says Volkswagen. Uh, US <laughs> versions will also receive air-conditioned seats and a illuminated Volkswagen logo at the front. Now, deliveries are expected in America in 2024, with Europe following shortly after for the long wheelbase. Production of the regular ID Buzz and ID Cargo are bound for Australia and set to begin production during 2024, with deliveries expected in late 2024 or early 2025. What do you guys think of the long wheelbase and do you think a Volkswagen should bring it to Australia? Uh, to answer your second question, I think Volkswagen should definitely bring it to Australia because we know the five-seat or the, the shorter wheelbase buzz is already coming and it's a car that's attracted a lot of interest. In terms of what we think, I mean, it's no great surprise Volkswagen is doing this. I know the Cockney and the Beetle are German cars, but they've kind of built their names and their reputations elsewhere in the world. The, the Combi is a hippie icon and then lived on for a really long time in Mexico and the Beetle obviously helped mobilize Germany, uh, but it also, again, had a very long life in, in a whole lot of developing countries and also was part of this sort of Californian flower child movement. So um, for Volkswagen to, to do a special version of the Combi specifically for America to, to hark back to that shows that it really cares about building a new reputation for its electric cars and tapping into its history. And I think that can only be a good thing. I think if it were me, though, and I've genuinely thought quite hard about this because eventually down the track when I have money, if I have money, I kind of like the idea of owning an ID Buzz. I think I'd buy the short wheelbase um, because you can fit kids in the back and there's a boot behind that, but it'll still also fit in a normal Melbourne parking spot. This is pretty exciting because I think when, when the ID Buzz was revealed, I, I mean, I personally was expecting it to have a third row of seats and then it didn't, um, even though it looks like it could fit a third row of seats. So now we've got this longer version, which will be closer in size to the less cool people movers like, Kia, like the Kia Carnival that dominate this segment. But this has just been such a long time coming because if we cast our minds back, I think it was 2002 or 2003 that Volkswagen revealed that microbus concept, which was a big people mover. Um, and then that never happened. Then there were there was another concept after that. That didn't happen. Um, now, <laughs> Volkswagen in the US will really appreciate having this car because they don't get the multivan there. They don't get the Caravelle there. The last time they had a people mover there was a restyled version of the Chrysler Town and Country, which um, oh, 
<laughs> sold for about a few, like for a hot minute and didn't sell particularly well. So I think Volkswagen dealers there will be very happy to have this car, but I would love to see it in dealerships here. It's interesting, Will, you say it's been a long time coming. I was actually not the job before this one, but the one before that in Detroit in 2017 when they revealed the concept. Um, and it was unbelievable, the, the crowd that it drew. You couldn't get close to the car. There were three or four people deep. And then obviously all the German execs were on the ground showing significant dealers and people around it as well. Uh, I suppose it's interesting that they thought America was important enough as to be the place where they reveal the concept for the first time, but only now, a couple of years after actually showing the production version, are they revealing the version that's aimed directly at the American market. Another car that we would like to come to Australia is the Lexus LBX, Jade. Uh, Lexus has revealed its smallest SUV that will join the lineup. Now, the Lexus LBX will replace the CT and will be based on a Yaris Cross SUV. Now, Lexus Australia is yet to make a decision if the SUV will make its way down under. Now, it will be a luxury small SUV um, that will have a 9.8 inch touchscreen in the center of the dashboard, a 12.3 inch digital instrument cluster and the infotainment system which is similar to the RX and the NX and the instrument cluster which shares with Toyota products. Now the vehicle will have heated and ventilated seating as well as a heated steering wheel and semi-automatic parking assist. Now it is slightly smaller than Lexus's current smallest SUV in Australia, which is the UX. And Lexus says that the LBX will offer all-wheel drive and front-wheel drive options. Now, power outputs are yet to be confirmed, but a hybrid option is going to be available. What do you think Lexus is trying to achieve by introducing the small SUV? And do you think that this will do well in Australia? I think it's a cute little thing. I have to say it is a genuinely cute little SUV. Um, it looks sharper than a Yaris cross. Uh, the interior actually looks really nice. The, the availability of features like ventilated front seats and a heated steering wheel is really nice. in this kind of section of the market, um, I'll be curious to see how it's actually packaged because the UX is, I believe quite a bit longer, but it doesn't exactly have the most spacious back seat. So we'll have to see what the LBX is like in that respect. Um, now it's worth noting as well that um, Lexus had teased this vehicle. Oh God, was it like a year ago? They released this teaser image of all of their upcoming electric models and then another teaser of all their upcoming non-electric models. So we already knew what this was going to look like quite a while ago. Um, I think even that teaser image maybe made it look a little bit lower and sleeker. It's actually a little bit kind of taller and boxier, but I think it's a cute little thing. The name is a little bit interesting. So this, this name had been rumored for quite some time. Obviously those rumors ended up being true. L is usually the letter that Lexus reserves for its highest models, LX, LS, um, LC, and it usually only has two letters, not three. Um, Lexus's naming system really makes not a lick of sense. Um, but um, look, I think this this vehicle will will do well. I know everyone is always clamoring for the latest models to be electric, but there's still definitely a market for combustion vehicles. And in hybrid vehicles, this, we're seeing you know, huge demand for hybrid vehicles in Australia. So this could do quite well. I wonder if the uh, – sorry, before you say something, Scully, I wonder if the X in the name means crossover. Oh, it, it it does. So I think Lexus said it was Lexus Breakthrough Crossover, correct me oh, if I'm wrong, Scott. Right. Which is marketing nonsense, okay. but anyway. Yeah, not uh, not sure what it's breaking through. But um, my, my worry with this is the power. Um, Lexus is not known for making really high-performance cars. Obviously, it's known for its efficient hybrids. And then maybe at the very top end, people think of V8 stuff. But the 1.5-litre hybrid system that's offered in the Yaris Cross makes less than 100 kilowatts of power. And I do think that even though this is going to be an urban-focused car, it's not for people who want a sports car, part of luxury is having a little bit of excess. And that might be in the context of leather inside. It might be in the context of style. I think it also should be in the context of performance. I've not once driven a Yaris Cross and got out and gone, my God, what a powerful, exciting drive that was. And I do think Lexus will be missing a trick if it doesn't bring a more advanced hybrid system to Australia or 
if the car comes to Australia or to the LBX just in general, because regardless of how luxurious it is or how nice the screen is or how quiet it is, that also means it's going to be heavier, obviously, than a Yaris Cross. If you need to work it really hard all the time to get going, it's not going to feel luxurious. I also have this sort of very present in my mind because I've actually been helping my parents buy a new car recently. Uh, and one of the cars they drove was a UX hybrid. And my mum, who has just hopped out of a BMW with a two-liter four-cylinder engine, hopped out and said, couldn't own one, gutless is all hell. Um, that's <laughs> obviously partly down to the fact that it's different to drive to her car, but people who do have experience with luxury brands and are hopping out of something bigger and maybe downsizing, which will be a big part of the Lexus's sort of demographic, they still want to feel like they've got a bit of grunt under their right foot and I hope Lexus gives it to them. Certainly. We now have timing for the MG4 electric car, Jade. When can we expect this? Yes, that's right. And also a surprise, potentially dual motor coming to Australia as well. So the MG4 range is expected in Australia later in September this year. Now, based on government approval database documents, a dual motor flagship model has been certified for sale in Australia. Now, the rumoured dual motor MG4 powertrain can produce 330 kilowatts of power and 600 newton metres of torque. However, local approval documents list a revised kilowatt output of 320 kilowatts. Now, WLTP figures are yet to be released. However, based on the Chinese MG4 equivalent, the vehicle will have a claimed range of 460 kilometers under the more lenient CLTC testing cycle. Now the dual motor can also feature 18 inch alloy wheels, colorful brake calipers and Alcantara upholstery. The dual motor will also receive an all wheel drive uh, versions which can launch alongside the single motor rear wheel drive later this year. Now MG will launch the 64 kilowatt hour and 77 kilowatt hour batteries later this year with a 51 kilowatt hour battery also confirmed. Now pricing for the models starts from $44,990 excluding on-road costs for the base model 64 kilowatt hour Excite. And the MG4 Essence 77 kilowatt hour starts from 55,990 excluding on-road costs. So we expect the 51 kilowatt hour battery to come in at a lower base price, which will be very exciting for customers. Now, for those wanting to know more about the MG4 price and specs, you can head over to the article on the carexpert.com.au website. MG has really stretched the MG4 lineup offering within the range with battery and powertrain options. Do you think the variety is too much within Australia or do you think they've really hit the nail on that? I don't think you can have enough at this stage. Um, electric cars are still fairly young in Australia and one of the problems we do have is a lack of choice. Um, most brands bring either a very high-end model or one entry-level model and then a couple of variations with a bigger battery and longer range. So the fact MG is offering us some choice is a really good thing. I think the MG4 is one of those cars that could really shape the market in Australia too. Everything you read about it in Europe is really positive. Um, initial reviews out of the UK have been very positive and we're getting a drive very soon on Australian roads that will hopefully confirm that, yes, it's, it's good here too. It's one of those cars that, yeah, if it is priced right, and, and we think it is initially, and if they can get enough supply of it, it could be another one of those doors that opens for a lot of people who have been looking to go electric but haven't yet found the right size or priced car. Yeah, I'm really keen um, to get behind the wheel of this because I've read those reviews as well, Scott, and they seem to really like it in the UK. Um, so we'll have to see if it's been tuned well um, for the roads here, which are often a lot worse. Um, now, I think it's also interesting as well that MG had previously released pricing, um, but only for the 64 kilowatt hour and 77 kilowatt hour single motor variants. Um, and when it came out that it was starting at 44,990 before on-road costs, I think people thought it was going to be a little bit cheaper because in the UK, the MG4's base price is lower than the ZSEV, whereas here it just seems like they're effectively line ball. Um, but um, now that 
MG has said that they are going to bring a 51 kilowatt hour battery option. That means that we should be looking at a lower base price for the range, which will only help MG sales. And I think MG is, you know, they've recently cemented themselves as a top 10 brand, now bringing in a well-priced electric hatchback as the market is increasingly demanding electric vehicles could really give them a boost in the sales charts. And that's not even the only um, new MG uh, that the brand is planning on launching this year because they've also got the petrol power at MG5, which will be cheaper and I think bigger, but, but it's called an MG5, you know, that's that's the naming system. Not they should have called the MG4 the Mulan here like they do in China, but anyway. <laughs> and lastly, Jade, uh, the Mazda CX-3, uh, the range has been cut, but the prices are rising. Yes, that's correct. Now, just wanted to note the CX-3 is actually the highest performing uh, small SUV within its segment and it currently holds 25% market share for this year. So Mazda has announced the latest updates, which will include a automatic transmission only, no all-wheel drive options, as well as a reshuffle of the remaining lineup. So the brand will now offer only eight variant options. All will be front-wheel drive and all will offer a six-speed automatic transmission. All models will have wireless CarPlay and wired Android Auto, as well as remote window control and power folding exterior mirrors. Now, the updated lineup will go on sale in September later this year. And as a result of no manual transmission, the range now starts with 26800 before on-road costs for the new base model Sport. While the flagship Akari now carries a $38,620 price tag before on-road costs. Now to justify the $1,290 price increase and also replacing the Neo Sport, the new Sport will gain 16-inch alloys, blind spot monitoring and rear traffic control. Now the Pure will replace the Max Sport and will get LED headlights and taillights, lane departure warning driver attention monitoring, and a heads-up display. Now, for the full list and price and specs of the new CX-3 range, you can head to the carexpert.com.au website. Now, Mazda seems to be reshuffling their local lineup, increasing pricing, and removing manual transmission and spec changes to include more options. Do you think Australians will still be in favour of the popular brand as it untakes its new positioning? It's really interesting because I've, when I've spoken to uh, Mazda executives in the past, they've just said, hey, uh, I've said, you, you you bring so much variety here. You bring so many different permutations. There were so many different Mazda 3s, so many different Mazda 2s, CX-3s, et cetera. Um, does that make sense to do that? And their answer has been in the past, well, you know, we want to give people variety. If we can get these vehicles, um, then why not? Um now Mazda seems to be reversing course a little bit there, cutting down the Mazda 3 range, as you mentioned, Jade, cutting down the Mazda CX-3 range. Um, now, this is probably clever from a business point of view because I saw a breakdown, it might have been last year or the year before, of all the different Mazda variants Um like within each model lineup and for what percentage of sales they accounted. And, you know, something like a, a CX-3 all-wheel drive or a, a top-spec Mazda 3 manual, they accounted for virtually no sales. But it is sad because, yes, it makes sense from a business point of view to kind of consolidate your lineup and, and trim those slower-selling variants. But from a customer point of view, I know there's not many of us that really will actually put our money where our mouth is and go and buy a car with a manual transmission. But for those enthusiasts that do want that, that option is gone. And for those people that I presume they're out there that want a CX-3 with all-wheel drive for some reason, uh, that option is no longer available. I think the CX-3 is a really interesting one because I know that the manual leaving is is news and that sort of thing. I'm less worried about playing around in the margins and more worried about when Mazda's going to give us a new one. That car is now, I know it's selling strongly, but it's quite old in the context of its competitors. And for everything it does well, it handles quite nicely. It looks quite good. The interior is quite nice. It's tiny in the back seat. It's got a tiny boot. I'm, I'm hoping that at some point in the next 12 months, Mazda actually gives us a can't be called a CX-30, I realise, because one of those already exists, but maybe a, a CX-20, a more luxurious, slightly more spacious, more modern version of the CX-3 because, yeah, forget the manual, forget the little tweaks to the spec and stuff. It's probably about time for a complete overhaul of that car. 
And it's also worth noting as well, Scott, the CX-3 is dead in certain markets. They killed it in the US. They killed it in Europe. Um, I think when the CX-30 came, I, I kind of just presumed that it was going to be a replacement for the CX-3. But now we've kind of seen that the, the segments get a little bit clearer. You've got the light SUV segment that the CX-3 still dominates despite its age, uh, going up against stuff like the Hyundai Venue. And then the CX-30 obviously occupies a different space, rivaling Kona and, and uh, Seltos and that. Um, but yeah, it would be nice to see a next generation model. I just don't know if it's going to happen because... Yes, there's Mazda clearly has no shortage of SUVs it wants to roll out, but it's also pushing a little bit further up market. Um, and there doesn't seem to be any sign of a next generation Mazda 2. Um, in some markets, that's just been replaced by a rebadged Yaris. And the current Mazda 2, despite having already received a mid-cycle update, has received another facelift. So it seems like they just want to squeeze as much life out of that as possible. So I don't know what the future is for the CX-3. I haven't really heard any reports in Japanese media about a replacement, and it would be a real shame if that were to disappear here because while it's far from my favorite car um it's extremely popular um and if mazda were to not have that um i don't know what what they would do in this in this part of the market all right well that wraps up this week's car news you can find more at carexpert.com.au as jade mentioned jade credentino thank you so much thank you so much mindy to talk about may's new car sales figures which we call the facts mike costello hello Hello, Mandy. How are you today? Absolutely fabulous because it looks like May was a record month. Oh, yes. It's not every monthly report where we get to uh, have some sexy, catchy introductory paragraph that sets it all up. But this one wrote itself because, indeed, it was an all-time record for the month of May. Just under 106,000 new cars were delivered to customer hands, and that's up 12% year on year. And it's driven the market's year-to-date tally to 456,000 sales, which is up 4.3%. And it's the best status after five months of the year since way back in 2018, which feels like a long time ago now because it was pre-COVID. Interestingly, though, the consensus out there in the industry seems to be that the real driving factor behind this sales increase was the fact that more and more of those big backorder banks are starting to be whittled down as vehicle supply improves because VFAX these days does count sales against registrations. So we're seeing more and more of those 12 to 18-month backorders being cleared off. What we aren't sure on is how much of those sales are new sales and how much of it is actually new demand, considering all the economic issues that are facing us at the moment around inflation and interest rates and things of that nature. We are hearing that showroom traffic is dropping off. So it's going to be interesting to see whether this is a sustained period of record sales or whether May was just a real one-off. The other thing that I'll mention is we know that uh, come July this year, the current very generous instant asset write-off tax policies will be water down, which means we might see an absolute rush on work vehicles like utes and vans as people really try to get those tax breaks squeezed in before the end of the financial year. (laughs) So how did all the, the popular brands go? Toyota, no doubt, on top again? Toyota was on top and it always is and there's no surprise in that. But what is interesting is the fact that its ongoing supply headaches remain worse than pretty much anybody else's. We're seeing this year most brands that were really struggling last year, and I I point mainly to the Volkswagen group, are now selling really good numbers again and getting plenty of supply into the market. But Toyota just cannot satisfy its back orders, which is why hybrid sales have really dropped this year. And it's why Toyota's market share is well below 20% this year. So while it is still on top. It was down 20% in the month and its market share is well below the 20% benchmark that it sets for itself. So good news in one way, but probably more bad news for Toyota. Mazda was safely in second place with 30% monthly growth, uh, growth, I should say, just ahead of Hyundai, which pipped Kia into fourth spot, Ford in fifth. But then there were a few newer faces in the top echelon of the market. So MG was in sixth, um, Tesla was in eighth, and GWM was in 12th ahead of Nissan. And GWM obviously includes the Haval and Tank brands as well. So a few changing faces up there. A couple of 
the brands that had particularly stellar months outside of those already mentioned um, are LDV, Lexus, Audi, Land Rover, Ram and Sanyong, all of which saw massive growth well above the overall market average. And if we have a look at some brands that struggled beyond Toyota, who we've already mentioned, we find Mitsubishi, Suzuki, Honda and Jeep. And you might have noticed that all of those brands, bar one, come out of Japan, which tells us that Australia's insatiable appetite for Japanese cars might be falling away as the influx of Chinese brands uh, start to come on stream. Speaking of which, I think it's also worth pointing out some of those new Chinese brands did quite well. So BYD with 1,448 sales was the number two EV brand in market. And the Atto 3 actually outsold the Tesla Model 3 for the month. So BYD is making a huge impression on the market. And Cherry sold nearly 600 cars in its second month on sale, which uh, for a little bit of context has it really knocking on the door of the likes of Skoda um, and having it ahead of Jeep. So a really strong start for that brand as well. What about the models? Yeah, so not a lot of surprises at the top of the charts. The top two, as always, were Hilux and Ranger in that order. And year to date, the D-Max is now in number three. So the top three selling vehicles are Utes. What was surprising last month, though, was the third placed vehicle for the month of May, which was the Tesla Model Y with just under 3,200 sales, which made it not only the most popular electric car, but it made it the most popular SUV of any type for the month. It outsold the Toyota RAV4 by some 500 units. Um, and then in fifth place was the MG ZS, um, rounding out the top 10 with the D-Max, the Hyundai i30, Hyundai Tucson, Mitsubishi Outlander and Mazda CX-5. So no huge surprises there. But again, that BYD Atto was in 13th place. So we're starting to see now um, more and more electric vehicles inside the top 20. In fact, there were three three pure EV models inside the top 20 because the Model 3 was in 19th. And then we also saw the MG ZS um, inside the top five, and a lot of those were the electric model. You mentioned that the market is stronger, that we've got back orders finally coming through, but there are still a couple of brands that really struggled. Um, it, it seems like cars coming from Japan or Japanese brands were some of the worst hit. Do we have any understanding of why that is? Yeah, so Japanese sales are well down this year, um, as you said, and, and it's still our main trading partner, but we have seen uh, China really spike, and China is now our third largest source of vehicles, and, and the changes in the Thai and Korean sourced vehicles have not um, been nearly as stark as those out of Japan. Much of this is because of Toyota, because Toyota is the dominant player, and its stock issues are well known, and it really is struggling to clear RAV4 and Camry and Land Cruiser orders. Mitsubishi, too, has its share of stock issues. And we've also seen Honda recently make a tactical decision to really reduce the number of vehicles it sells. And it's really not going very well for, for old Honda at the moment. It's languishing well down towards the middle of the table. But I think also you're seeing competition increasingly coming from the Chinese brands. And they're the ones that are really starting to steal a lot of sales from the Japanese. Um, and it really does make you question the you know, general strategies of the Japanese brands to really be quite slow off the mark with EVs. Is that starting to bite them? Well, the sales data would suggest yes. Uh, one thing we didn't cover before, uh, Moko, was the uh, segments. Yes. So if we uh, look at sort of the top level segmentation, you see that SUVs had 56% share of the total market, like commercials at 22.5% and passenger cars. And by passenger cars, we mean sedans, hatches, coupes, convertibles, wagons, and people movers um, were only 17% of the market. So that that just continues to sort of win, uh, uh, dwindle away. Um, the top segment overall was medium SUV with almost a quarter of the entire market was a medium SUV, which doesn't, doesn't surprise us, therefore, that any medium SUV content we do, and I'm thinking here of the mega test we did last year is obviously so successful because these are the vehicles people buy. 4x4 utes was 16 which means four in 10 of vehicles sold last month or either a 4x4 ute or a mid-sized SUV. So they are far and away the two dominant vehicle types. It's also interesting, I think, to have a little bit of a look at sales by buyer type. So we saw private buyer sales were just over half the market, up 7.4%. But business fleets and government fleets, um, which alongside rentals are the other half of the market, they were up by around 20%. So we're starting to see as supplies improve, those big fleet companies really starting to actually land the stock that they, they want to get through because fleet companies, of course, tend to 
pause purchases when there's limited stock on the ground. So I think most of the growth that we see for the rest of this year will come from big fleet operators like the government, like rental companies and like big corporations and SME starting to turn over their fleets. And then the other one I'll mention just before I throw to any more questions is sales by propulsion or fuel type. Um, petrol sales are up 10.6%. Diesel was down by 4%. Hybrids down by 3%. FEVs up by 14%. But electric was up by nearly 8 Hundred um, percent, and it was at wow. about eight percent of the total market. Um, if you rip out heavy commercial vehicles where there are no EVs, and in double digits, if you take light commercials out of that and just look at passenger and SUVs, so EV is really where a lot of the action is at the moment. Um, coming into the end of financial year is always a massive month for car sales, uh, and even more so given the instant asset write-off ending based on what you said before. Have you heard yeah. anything from car brands suggesting they're, they're expecting a really big June or are they still a bit cautious given the lack of supply we've seen over the last couple of years? Yeah, I think supply is very very dependent on brand. So some brands have got great supply and others are struggling. What I'm hearing though is it's no secret that times are getting tough economically. I mean, anyone who has a mortgage knows that interest rate increases have a massive impact on your monthly budget. I mean, the average Australian family has a grand or a grand and a half less in the kitty every single month just because of their mortgage increases. You've got inflation, you've got downward wage pressure, you've got a weakening economy in general, which what I'm hearing from dealers is that it is actually reducing foot traffic and they're relying on the satisfying of back orders to really drive the sort of sales growth that we're seeing. I think there will be a bit of a spurt in June where companies do try to get in just before the end of financial year and capitalise on, you know, being being able to write off that new ute or van really quickly. But I suspect as the year progresses, you'll start to see the market soften a little bit as the economy continues to weaken. But I think it's safe to say that June should be another bumper month, just building on the trends that we saw in May. All right. If you uh, have any questions for uh, Mike, you can put them in the uh, comments below in the article at carexpert.com.au. Always a fascinating chat, Mike Costello. Thank you. Always a pleasure, guys. Take care. Our car expert reviewed the Volkswagen Amarok Aventura. Okay, guys, how do you say this? Is it Aventura? I think think Aventura, but I also don't work for Volkswagen. And, Will, you did the review, so I'm going to leave it to you. I've I've been saying Aventura, but that doesn't – I don't know. Now I'm not sure. Aventura makes more sense to me because you go on an adventure in a ute. I aventura know. sounds like the like what the Aussie pronunciation would be. Yeah, the aventura. Uh, okay, like you can aventura. Hear it. Let's go with aventura. Lost in the weeds here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we reviewed the diesel just a few weeks back, but uh, Will, you've had the chance to drive the petrol variant. Uh, this is the, the top of the range Amarok spec. Um, did it actually feel like you were driving a Ute? Oh, look. I was really impressed by this. When, when Volkswagen said that they were going to bring the Amarok here with an available turbocharged petrol engine, I was intrigued because, as we've seen in this segment, pretty much all the petrol options are gone. You've either got your kind of traffic controller spec Hilux Workmates, I think one Triton left with a petrol engine, or you've got a Ranger Raptor. Like, there's nothing in between. And I remember there was a time when it felt like every second Hilux on the street had the little V6 badge on the grill. And there were, you know, petrol Navaras. There was a petrol Amarok like 10 years ago in Australia. Um, And they just all disappeared because the segment has so heavily embraced diesels. So when Volkswagen said, hey, we're going to bring this here, we're just going to bring it in one top spec variant. um, But, you know, why not? Um, I was intrigued. Um, I'm not, I think I've been gone on the record before saying I'm not a Ute person. I'm, I'm really not. I really loathe the fact that they've sort of become the, the default family vehicle for a lot of people. I've tried to dissuade people from buying Utes. I see the purpose that they serve. Obviously, they've come a long way. They're a lot more comfortable for the most part than they used to be. Um, they offer more safety equipment than they used to. And a lot of people will use the capability. I'm not saying that no Ute buyer is going to go towing or go off-roading or whatever. But a lot of people I know that are interested in buying a Ute, they, let's be honest, they're not going to use the capability. So I entered this review with this combination of inch, like you know, uh, curiosity about having a petrol engine under the bond of a Ute and also my general kind of distaste for Utes. And I come out really pleasantly surprised. 
Will, I experienced this engine quite briefly on the launch of the Amarok earlier this year, and I came away with this feeling of just overall weirdness because every dual cab ute you drive, you get in it, you get comfortable, you press the start button, and then this diesel engine kind of chunters into life and the steering wheel vibrates a bit and you drive off sounding like a tractor. I know it sounds like a really basic thing, but how did you go wrapping your head around driving a ute with a petrol engine and, and did it really mess with you? Scott, it's, it was really freaking weird because I had to fill it up at one point and I knew it was petrol, right? I picked up the, the pump and I'm like, no, this doesn't feel right. And I opened the <laughs> filler door. I'm like, this doesn't feel right. It's, it's, it's so strange. And then you get in the car as well and get driving. You get onto the freeway and it's so quiet because even though um, like an Amarok diesel four-cylinder or diesel V6, you know, they're, they're refined in, in the context of the segment, absolutely. Um, but there's always, regardless of what you do in the segment, there's always that persistent diesel soundtrack. You've got that clatter and kind of shake on startup. You've got that, that I, I can't even think of the word to describe it, but it, it's it's omnipresent. Whereas with this, the engine just disappears into the background at highway speeds. And it's really quite pleasant. And when you do punch it, it doesn't sound like a ute. It sounds like a petrol car or SUV. So I, I came away really impressed by that. Now, I've driven the, the V6 turbo diesel. I really like it. It's got a lot of power for, for the segment. It's got a lot of torque. It's, it goes. But this has such a different feel and it's a nice feel. Hmm. Do you think this will give Volkswagen the, the, the upper level? Because I don't think you can get this engine in the Ranger, can you? So it's a really good question. Um, I don't think that this will account for, and I don't think Volkswagen thinks this either. I don't think it's going to be a volume player. They, they brought it in in just one variant. It's it's the top spec model as well. I'd love, I personally would love to see this engine in the Panamericana or the Style or the Life, just to give people more non-diesel options. Um, if you look at this segment in the US, the Ranger. Um, has historically only been offered like the outgoing generation um, because they're only just now getting a new one has only ever been offered with the 2.3 litre turbo four that's under the bonnet of, the, of this Amarok. Um, new models like the Chevy Colorado, GMC Canyon, Toyota Tacoma, they all use turbocharged four cylinder petrol engines. Now, obviously the US is a very different market. They're a lot more diesel averse um, than, than we are. Um, but I, I, I don't think it's, it's really a bad idea to have um, a, a petrol engine here considering the, the fuel economy I got with this wasn't really that bad. Um, I actually matched the combined cycle claim um, over a mix of kind of inner city suburban highway driving. I got 9.9 litres per 100 kilometres, um, which is the official claim. Now, when I did a very similar loop in a bi-turbo four-cylinder Ranger a little while ago, I, I got around like 10.2 from memory. So the efficiency from this is, is pretty decent. Mm. What are your thoughts on the price, Will? It doesn't really have any direct competition, right? Like it's not cheap. It's absolutely not cheap. It's actually the same price as the Aventura um, with, oh, I guess that's how I pronounce it, Aventura. Anyway, um, <laughs> it's the same price as the same trim level with the V6 turbo diesel. So you're looking at 79990 before on roads. That is not cheap. Um, and it's worth noting that, if you, I mean, if you're splashing out that much cash, what's another seven or so grand? You could get a Ranger Raptor. Um, but um, when I was writing this review, I'm thinking, well, what am I going to compare this against for, for context? And, and there's, there's really nothing because even a Ranger Raptor is not a direct rival. It's a different beast. It's it's more um, off-road oriented. It's more powerful. It's it has a very different sound and a very different look. Um, so, yeah, not not cheap, but it, it's certainly nice. Will, I am curious about where you see this fitting in the broader ute market. I mean, we've talked a lot about the Amarok already on the podcast. We know it drives really nicely. It's got quite a nice interior, looks pretty upmarket. Do you think it's going to be drawing people in from utes that they already own? Or do you think instead it's going to be drawing people in from SUVs and maybe contributing to the problem you talk about, which is people who don't need a massive ute <laughs> using one as a family car? You know, I do wonder about that because driving this made me think, geez, I'd love to see Volkswagen's take on a Ford Everest. I'd love to see an Amarok mm. SUV with this engine. I think that would be really nice. Um, 
I think this could lure in existing Amarok buyers. I mean, this is a whole nother level of, of interior sophistication safety equipment compared to, to the old Amarok. Uh, I could potentially see this luring in maybe some Mercedes-Benz X-Class buyers. I mean, it's not a really big pool to to, to get from, but um, I don't know if it's going to necessarily appeal to Ranger buyers because Volkswagen has done such a good job of differentiating this from the Ranger. If you look at, say, the Isuzu D-Max and the Mazda BT50, Mazda gave the, the, the D-Max unique front-end styling, but the interior, I mean, it's like playing spot the difference. It's the same you know, t- uh, infotainment system, same instrument cluster, et cetera. Now, when you get into an Amarok, yes, it, it is a Ford touchscreen. It is a Ford instrument cluster, but Volkswagen has given it, uh, has given both like a completely unique skin. So they look like, genuine Volkswagen designed systems. So they have the, the generally good use, generally, I say generally, good usability of the Ford systems, but with that kind of crisp Volkswagen appearance and less of that kind of sea of blue that Ford loves doing. Um, now, that that means there are a couple of usability issues that you do find in the Ranger, um, like finding the camera shortcut button. Oh, it took me forever to figure out where that is. Finding the, the shortcut for auto hold, it's buried in some menu somewhere. You know, a lot of rivals will just have a physical button for that, but because Ford and Volkswagen wanted to employ such a large touch screen, you know, some buttons had to go and uh, those were a couple of them. Um, but in making this interior look the way it does, and it looks nicer than the Ranger interior, I do have to say, it, it looks, especially in, the, in this top spectrum where you've got like the leather look dashboard and you've got black and brown uh, upholstery and, and subtle ambient lighting pouring up from behind the armrest, it looks really like classy, like, and not just for you, it, it just genuinely looks nice. Um, but Volkswagen has also made some errors, I would say, in, in uh, overhauling the interior. Um, so getting rid of the pop-out cup holders, not a, not a great move, especially when the two cup holders in the center console are awkwardly sized and awkwardly positioned. Um, getting rid of the physical climate controls to put in these little kind of rockery switches. I mean, the rockery switches are nice and it makes you feel more like you're in a Volkswagen and not in a Ford. Um, but physical climate controls are always preferable if you want to adjust the temperature Yes, I know you can use the voice prompts, but you have to just press on the screen and then a little slider appears. It's it's just a much less intuitive way of doing things. And yeah, people might get used to that, but I don't think people should have to get used to that. I don't think you should sacrifice really simple key elements um, uh, on the on the altar of style. The the overall result though is is a, a very premium looking interior. I think if this were an SUV at this price point, I would have more to criticize it for because there's still a lot of hard plastic, but you know, I mean, a $79,990 SUV is, seems to be held to a different standard as a, as a $79,990 ute. Um, so most of the touch points are really nice. You've got a lot of hard plastic on the sides of the center stack, but again, for a ute, that's, that's pretty much par for the course. And I would say overall, despite its usability gaffes, this is the nicest interior in the segment. Yeah, well, I think the other frustrating change that Volkswagen made was moving the trailer brake controller. Um, it on the Ranger sits really neatly on the dashboard next to the steering wheel, and on the Amarok, it's under the center stack somewhere oh. that forces the USB ports right back out of the way and makes it harder to access your phone. I know it's a small thing, but uh, that annoyed me as well. Uh, in the Ranger, yes. that's where they put the USB ports. It feels different for the sake of being different, but I realise we're nitpicking there. Um, if it was your money you were spending for your use case, which you do you think you'd buy? Would you buy a V6 diesel? Would you buy an Amarok petrol? And why? Because I think that's ultimately the key question with this car. It, it might be good, but is it good enough or different enough to make you think differently about how you'd use and own a use? Oh, that's a tough one, Scott, because I, I personally wouldn't buy either. I wouldn't buy any use. I'm not a ute person. <laughs> if I had to put myself in the shoes of a ute person, um, it's, it's a tough call because they've got the same brake towing capacity. Um, they've got, they're similarly powerful. Obviously the diesel's got a bit more torque there. Um, 
but in terms of the way they actually feel on the road, um, they, they both feel quite responsive. Um, I think it really comes down to fuel prices. You really have to look and see how much you're paying for diesel and how much you're paying for um, for 95 Ron premium unleaded because it doesn't run on 91, it does require 95. Um, I personally really like this engine. I would like to see more um, efficient, punchy um petrol engines in this segment. Uh, but, you know, if, if you're paying more for premium unleaded fuel than for diesel and the fuel economy is potentially slightly worse for the petrol, I haven't I haven't done the same fuel economy loop in, in, a, in a V6 turbo diesel Amarok, so I, I can't compare apples to apples here. But I, I suspect there's, there's not going to be that much in it uh, in terms of a difference in, in fuel economy. So it really does come down to uh, how much you're going to be paying to refuel and how much you really do like the feel of it. I really do like the feel of this, but I also really like the feel of the turbo diesel V6. So don't really have an answer for you. 50-50. All right. Well, you can read the full review now at carexpert.com.au. <laughs> Now, the words 13 four-wheel drive SUV drag race isn't something you hear every day and all together as well, uh, and it's certainly never been attempted before until now. Uh, Scully, <laughs> I can't believe we actually did this. Um, this would have been a giant undertaking. You didn't actually put all 13 together and race them at once, did you? Yeah, look, had we tried to line all 13 up side by side, our headline would have been world's largest SUV crash. Um, <laughs> as much as it would have been a really fun thing to do, we used the, the skid pan at the Vinfast, used to be Holden Proving Ground in Lang Lang, and it's just not wide enough to get 13 cars. So we do four at a time in a round robin. The winner of each round goes through to a final, and the winner of that final is crowned the overall winner until it's not because we had a little surprise come along, but we'll get to that. Um, but this was part of our latest sort of mega test awards. Um, last year, we put this together with Utes. We did a drag race, an off-road test, and a towing test. Um, and, and this year, the first one we've done is with these large four-wheel drive SUVs. They need to have seven seats and low-range gearing to qualify because obviously for the off-roading test, if they don't have low-range gearing, they're, they're not really a serious off-roader. Um, and the goal is to find out in the drag race, which is fastest, obviously, but to, to really put them through their paces in quite a scientific, comprehensive way. So if you do have some money to spend on a car to tow a caravan around Australia or to go deep into the bush off-road with your family – you really have some good data and some good vision to do it with. And the first part of that was the drag race. Um, we put all of the cars, which included two Ford Everests, an Isuzu MUX, a Jeep Grand Cherokee L, two Land Rover Defenders, one of which we'll come to later, the Lexus LX600, Mitsubishi Pajero Sport, Nissan Patrol, Sangyong Rexton, and a Toyota Fortuna, Land Cruiser, and Prado into chat GPT and made it put together a bracket for the cars and then from there set about actually racing them. Cool. Um, were there any ones that we sort of missed out on in that lineup? Yeah, so um, based on our criteria, we have pretty much everything there. What was missing was the LDV D90. Uh, LDV didn't want to give us a car, and unfortunately, you can't force someone to give you a car no matter how much we'd like to. And then the new Range Rover Sport is no longer a seven-seater, and we couldn't get the big seven-seat Range Rover from Land Rover. They didn't have one available even though they wanted to supply one. So they're the major uh, outs, I suppose, for the test. You'll notice on YouTube, this video has already gone live and it's actually in trending at the moment as we're talking. There's a lot of people commenting going, why didn't you run the BMW X5M? Or why is the Audi SQ7 not there? Or why is the Bentley Bentayga not there? Our criteria weren't based on price. Um, so you've got everything from the, the $45,000 Rexton through to the $200,000 Lexus LX600, but low range gearing and seven seats. And a lot of the cars that people have put forward as competitors don't meet those criteria. So without um, obviously saying the winner right now, but uh, was there a car for you personally, Scully, that really surprised you with its performance? Yeah, the Land Rover Defender 110, uh, the diesel, the D300. Uh, the Defender looks like a brick on wheels. It's a very stylish British chic brick, but it's very boxy. Um, and even though it's got quite a punchy inline six diesel, I didn't really expect all that much from it. But in our first race, which was the Land Cruiser 300, the Everest V6, the Grand Cherokee L and the Defender, it actually came out on top. Um, I was driving it and it got off the line okay. No thanks to me. That was just the car doing its thing. But on the move, it was noticeable side by side with the Land Cruiser that the Defender actually had a bit more in-gear punch. Um, we did some more performance testing on these cars and we found their 80 to 120 times and their 0 to 100s. 
And the Defender 110 was one of the quickest cars for the overtaking measure we did at 5.87 seconds, 80 to 120. It really showed on the move. It it packed a real punch. (laughs) Um, So I know I'm itching to to see which one won, Scully. So Defender won our first race. Second race was Lexus LX600, Toyota Land Cruiser Prado, Toyota Fortuna and Nissan Patrol. The Patrol, I thought, would actually put in a stronger showing given it's a V8, but the LX600 absolutely hauls ass. Uh, It was the winner there quite comfortably. It just launches off the line and then from there pulled away and and never looked back. It's got a turbocharged petrol V6 engine. That same engine is on the Land Cruiser platform, obviously, but it's not offered in the Land Cruiser in Australia and it's a bit of a shame because it's a weapon. Third round was all four-cylinder cars, and it was the Isuzu MUX, the Sangyong Rexton, Mitsubishi Pajero Sport, and the Ford Everest, uh, also known as the school run special, this drag race. And the MUX was the winner. Got a really strong launch, and from there pulled away. The Everest and the Pajero Sport, depending on how early Tony launched the Pajero Sport relative to Igor saying go, um, (laughs) were sort of neck and neck and the Rexton was there or thereabouts as well. But the MUX was comfortably the quickest of those four in our drag race. And that means the final was the Lexus LX600, the Isuzu MUX and the Defender. Now, what are you putting your money on? I don't know. You were saying plenty of good things about the Defender. I I reckon that one. Will, I know you were there, but going into this test, did you have an expected winner? I was thinking Lexus LX. Yeah, so Will was on the money. The LX um, got a bit of a jump on the Defender. It was actually very close. We ran this race a couple of times just to make sure that the start was always fair because I was slightly napping in the Defender first time around. Um, But, yeah, the LX just had it over the Defender 110 and was crowned the winner of the drag race until it wasn't because just like last time where we rolled out a Ram TRX to take on the Ranger Raptor, This time we actually had a Land Rover Defender 110 V8 lying in wait and ready to go. So as Paul was driving back to the start line, having just won the race in the LX, we wheeled out the Defender 110 V8 and lined up for for one more crack at things. Really, really nice V8 noises and it looks fantastic. It's all blacked out. It's got deployable side steps. Um, None of that really matters in the drag race, obviously. It's just which car is fastest and the Defender was fastest. Even without launch control, it gets off the line pretty well. And from there, it just drives away from the LX. And if you watch the video on YouTube, you can sort of see it happening. Paul looks to his right in the LX and kind of thinks he's in with a shot and then just watches the Defender walk away. Um, <laughs> I was driving again, I can confirm. It's very, very good fun. I know, Will, you came for a ride as well. Yeah, it's also wild just seeing the Defender V8 take off because the, yes. the way it just kind of leans, it just looks like it's just ready to go. Um, I think a couple of commenters are like, what's the point in doing this? It's like... What, why not? Why like, not? We yeah. have all the cars there. We have a giant space to do it. it. Why wouldn't we do it? Like, come on. I think guys. if we didn't do it, they'd be asking for it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and just have a little fun. Oh, no, nobody's going to be drag racing big, you know, four-wheel drive SUVs. Yeah, like, duh. But we did, and it was a lot of fun. So enjoy. <laughs> You're welcome. I think also. <laughs> it's a public service uh, I think also this is a really fun thing to do but it does lead into the more serious part of the comparison which is we ran a whole lot of performance numbers for these cars both with and without a trailer on the back we've put together a really comprehensive off-road test and then we've also done a really comprehensive towing test um, when this podcast audio goes live the performance comparison story will be live as well um, it'll be live on the site on, on Friday, the 9th of June, and that will have numbers on 0 to 100, 60 to 100, 80 to 120, braking from 100 to 0, and then how all the cars performed with our Dyne trailer on the back as well, which essentially builds a load up to simulate driving up a hill. Uh, some of our four-cylinder cars weren't even able to hit 100 k's an hour with this trailer attached. All of the bigger cars were. But the way their performance and their fuel economy changes with the trailer on the back is really interesting and is the sort of thing that if I was towing a caravan around Australia, I'd really want to know about. So the drag race is obviously really good fun and I I think the video has come out awesome, although I am biased, obviously, having all of us been very involved in putting it together. But it's sort of the entree for the really serious numbers that are coming and the big tow test video, which is being put together as we speak. Do you think maybe next time when y'all are drag racing, you'll let me drag race one of them, please? (laughs) I'm just I'm just keeping the site running, writing news in the in the in the chalet, Aww. and everyone's off having fun. So you know, Aww. maybe next time. next time, Will. This is uh, this is the sound of me playing the world's smallest violin, Will. <laughs> 
As uh, Scully said, head to YouTube or the uh, Car Expert story to uh, check out the video. There goes another Car Expert podcast. Uh, what events have we got coming up, Will? It looks like you're jet-setting, possibly. Oh, the, the team is going everywhere this week. We're all over the place. <laughs> um, so Jade is up in Sydney uh, for a Skoda event. Uh, Jack was just in Sydney for a Kia event. Um, James is, at the time of recording, in Adelaide for the local launch of the Alfa Romeo Tenali. Um, I am going to Alice Springs um, to go to the Fink desert race uh i've never been to the northern territory um so this will be a lot of fun so it's five days out there um who are you going with um ford um so we'll we'll get a chance to drive some um fords out there as well um so that will be exciting and then tony is off to Côte d'Azur um on the weekend i believe to drive the new aston martin db12 so it's all Expect to hear nothing about Aston Martin DB12 for the next week when he gets back. You wouldn't <laughs> buy anything else, Mandy. You'd have to have rocks in your head to buy a Ferrari. <laughs> nailed it, Will, nailed it. Um, and, uh, and what cars have we got coming up, Scully? So in Melbourne, we've got a couple of Mazdas. They've just updated the 6 and the CX-8. So we've got some new Mazda 6s rolling through. We've also got a range of Subaru Crosstrex rolling through as we work our way through that new lineup. And next week, we've got the GWM Aura electric car, which I'm very much looking forward to driving on the road, having experienced it on a private track in Anglesey earlier this year. Awesome. Okay. Well, that wraps up everything. Uh, if you do need to get in touch with us for any questions at all or feedback, a podcast at carexpert.com.au is our email. William Stopford and Scott Colley, thank you very much, Lee. Thanks, Mandy. Thanks, Mandy.